for that. Go ahead and open your Bibles up to 2 Samuel chapter 3, um, verses 6 through 16. Those are the verses I'm going to read. The section we'll take up this morning. If you're a guest of ours, we've been doing this line-by-line, verse-by-verse track through 2 Samuel. Um, we think it's a timely series for us, and yet this one is going to be a little bit different. And so uh, if you found your place there, would you stand with me for the honor of reading God's word together? We do this knowing and proclaiming that this is God who is speaking to us through his people, through the pronouncement of his written word. Let's start in verse 6 and we'll read to verse 16. Now it was so, while there was war between the house of Saul and the house of David, that Abner was strengthening his hold on the house of Saul. And Saul had a concubine whose name was Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah. So Ishbosheth said to Abner, Why have you gone into my father's concubine? Then Abner became very angry at the words of Ishbosheth and said, Am I a dog's head that belongs to Judah? Today I show loyalty to the house of Saul, your father, to his brothers and to his friends, and have not delivered you into the hand of David. And you charged me today with a fault concerning this woman? May God do so to Abner, and more also, if I do not do for David as the Lord has sworn to him, to transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and set up the throne of David over Israel and over Judah, from Dan to Beersheba. And he could not answer Abner another word, because he feared him. Then Abner sent messengers on his behalf to David, saying, Whose is the land? Saying also, Make your covenant with me, and indeed my hand shall be with you to bring all Israel to you. And David said, Good, I will make a covenant with you. But one thing I require of you, you shall not see my face until you first bring Michal, Saul's daughter, when you come to see my face. So David sent messengers to Ishbosheth, Saul's son, saying, Give me my wife Michal, whom I betrothed to myself for a hundred foreskins of the Philistines. And Ishbosheth sent and took her from her husband, from Paltial, the son of Laesh. And then her husband went along with her to Baharim, weeping behind her. So Abner said to him, Go, return. And he returned. First Baptist Church of Grey Gables, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Let's go to the Lord and thank, thank him for his word this morning. Gracious Father, I'm, I pray, Lord, that you would guard my mouth this morning. Would you fill my heart with your spirit? Lord, as we take up your word this morning, would you be glorified? Father, would you help your people hear? Would you help them respond in a way that honors you? Help us to be faithful in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. We ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Well, for a period about two years in the gifted class of Hilliard Middle Senior High School, all six of us, uh, I had an obsession with the game of chess. Anybody go through a chess phase or enjoy that game? I don't play much anymore, um, but one of the things most people know about chess is that chess includes a variety of different pieces to the game. Among those are pawns. Pawns are often considered expendable. They are lowly creatures on the board used to defend the more significant pieces with greater power. I have for my main idea this morning, something that's going to need a little bit of an explanation, but I'm going to give it to you in this way anyways, and I, I believe this is what we find in our text. I believe what we find is that when God is silent, 
people become pawns. When God is silent, people become pawns. Now, we'll take up the, the rest of this text and really the exposition of this text from chapter 3, verse 6 to verse 30 next week. But today, we're going to look at trees. I don't like looking at trees. Maybe it's because I'm in Florida and they don't change, uh, but it just goes against my nature. You know what I mean when I say look for trees, right? Especially when we're talking about historical narrative when you can miss the forest for the trees. So I ask for your patience this morning, but I also want to remind you that this entire preaching enterprise is not the producer simply speaking to consumer who sits passively while the word is proclaimed. Instead, remember what worship is. We are all active participants sitting under the word of God desiring to be addressed and transformed by it. Meaning, my encouragement to you is that I need you this morning specifically to actively listen to what is said and hold it up to the word of God. So let's begin and dive right in. You might have found that main idea a little bit off-putting, particularly the part about God being silent. But, but let's begin by saying when I say God is silent, what I mean is that in our passage, no one seeks him. God is silent means in our passage this morning that no one seeks him. In other words, he does not intervene, nor does the narrator mention his involvement in these events at all. In that sense, God is silent. We might as well add for the sake of clarity that God is never silent. Please hear and understand that God always speaks. His majesty is displayed everywhere. God has put, according to Ecclesiastes, eternity into the heart of every man. That means there is an eternal witness to God always. But most importantly, even in our context, we also have God's law. It's right there in the midst of the people of Israel if anyone ever bothered to pick up and read it. And so I'm going to keep talking about the silence of God in this passage and in this sermon. But the silence is caused by deaf ears. The silence is our problem, not God's problem. God is silent because no one is listening. And when that happens... People become pawns. I want to see this in a couple ways this morning. We start by seeing that particularly when God is silent, people become pawns. It means that women are used for personal pleasure and advantage. When God is silent, people become pawns. That's what we see. Women are used for personal pleasure and advantage. Here we see in this passage the use of two women as pawns to help strengthen the political position of two men. Abner makes himself strong, it says in verse 6, by taking Saul's concubine. The narrator says that Abner was strengthening his hold on the house of Saul and then goes on to imply that one of the ways he did so was by taking Saul's concubine for himself. Likewise, as I pointed out last week, David also takes McCall, his ex-wife, back. And every commentator I read agreed that this is almost certainly politically motivated. 
And I know you have to be careful when you talk about motivation because the narrator doesn't actually tell us what David's motive is here, but it seems very likely that he's maneuvering himself to get into the good graces of those who are the pro-Saul Israelites. Marrying Saul's daughter... So if you look at verses 12 through 16, we'll see David attempt to strengthen his hand by taking Saul's daughter back. And and now I get it, David was married to her first. But either way, it seems that David is acting in the ways which is keeping with the kings like the king of the nations. His actions simply mirror Abner's actions in verses 6 and 11. I would argue that the narrator, human and divine, obviously understand that Paltiel is her legal husband because he's referred to as her husband twice in the text. Either way, David's seizing the opportunity to secure a legitimate right to the throne by taking a seventh wife or remarrying Saul's daughter. And here's the question as we find ourselves in this historical narrative. In light of these things, how are we to interpret this? Are we to evaluate and judge them? And if so, how so? Well, let me remind you, we are supposed to interpret them. We are called to do so. We are to attempt to understand what God thinks about these things. It's not just a story. It's not just a historical record. It does record historical real events, but it does so with purpose. It's meant to instruct the people of God. Remember 2 Timothy 3.16, a verse I hope we're all familiar with, right? All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. So we are meant to attempt and understand, are these righteous actions? Is David simply being wise as a serpent and gentle as a dove or not? Well, I'm actually going to pursue that that question further next week. But this morning, because of our task of looking at trees and not the forest, I'll just get right to it. I believe his actions are twisted. And in fact, I believe this record is twisted people doing twisted things. It's not an accident that David's actions in verses 12 through 16 mirror Abner's actions. They both use women to gain a political advantage. How do I know that this is twisted? Because scripture is the only infallible interpreter of scripture. God's word gives the reader the only lens through which we are to see this rightly. So let's go ahead and go right back to the beginning. What do we know so far before we get to 2 Samuel? We know that the woman was created as a necessary ally in the garden project of God according to Genesis 1 and 2. The woman, like Adam, was created in the image of God and was even the pinnacle of God's creative work. God is not silent on this matter. God rendered judgment about the state of man without woman. What was that judgment according to Genesis chapter 2 verse 18? It is not good that man should be alone. For this reason, God created woman, not another man, to be united to Adam in a covenant of companionship for the building and the advancement of the kingdom of God in this world. 
So woman is necessary. She wasn't made simply as a tool to be wielded by Adam, nor as a prop to be set up in the garden for Adam's use. She wasn't a pawn. She was a queen. Just as Adam was a king, she was an integral participant. It's the woman who is named in the first garden promise in Genesis 3.15. The rest of the historical narrative of redemptive history testifies, friends, to the significance of our sisters. They are never simply pawns to be moved for our political advantage. They are necessary allies in our fight against the cosmic powers in this present darkness. But when God is silent... Women are degraded to the role of a tool. They're used to create alliances, to gain access to wealth, to gain favor, or give the appearance of power and strength. When God is silent, men do what is right in their own eyes. The patriarchs are guilty of a similar root sin, aren't they? The sacrifice of the woman for the sake of personal security... Abraham and Isaac both asked their wives to lie about their true relationship in order to save their own skin. In all of these instances, the essential identity of the woman as a fellow image bearer and necessary ally in the glorious kingdom project of God is replaced with an unbiblical view of the woman as a means to an end. Whether it be personal security, power, or pleasure... But the reality is, friends, when God is silent, it's not just women who are pawns, though, is it? In fact, when God is silent, people are used for personal pleasure and advantage. When God is silent, people are used for personal pleasure and advantage. I hope that first point was encouraging to you, sisters, because now I have to say this. Women also do the same thing to women, don't they? Sarah treats Hagar as a tool as she hands her over to Abraham in order to fulfill the promise of God through earthly means. Women even do the same thing to men. We learned in Sunday school how Rachel pimped out her husband Jacob to make a child in Genesis 30. Queen Jezebel swept a useless pawn named Naboth off the board just to secure a vineyard. This is a general truth. When God is silent, people become pawns. Children who are raised, given to us to be raised in the image of their heavenly father are used for the inglorious ends of an unscrupulous people. People are dehumanized in our sights. They become props in our play and tools for our tyranny. The poor and the fatherless are always at risk at being used in this way. It's why we find so many admonitions in the scriptures to protect them. Hear me. I'm, I'm not a political pundit, but haven't we seen how some of the most vulnerable in our society are being used as pawns right now for the political advantage of those who desire to deconstruct our government? In order to replace it with a system that they believe will fix all of our social ills? I mean, listen, the reality is, I, I honestly don't. Uh, hear me and don't interpret this the wrong way. I don't mind having conversations. Those things are good. You ever had one of those? 
I, I, I feel like when I say conversations, you might be interpreting that as something else because I'm not sure we really know what conversations are anymore. But I'm for conversations, particularly about the benefits and cost to, to things like capitalism or even socialism. I'm sorry, I use the S word, forgive me. But listen, I'm all for conversations about how you perceive we can improve our communities. I'm for those conversations. List the topic, let's have a conversation, but let's do it with our Bibles open. But when people fabricate a narrative that is contrary to truth with the purpose of mobilizing or even militarizing any group, that is wicked. And it must be condemned boldly and unapologetically. And I'm just going to say it, forgive me, the current leadership of the Democratic Party at the national level are guilty of using people as pawns. Now, are they the only ones? Of course not. I don't believe that you could possibly argue that any are free from this sin. But I also don't believe you can be so flippant with facts and careless with words without an intentional, even diabolic commitment to the deception and abuse of the very people that you're lying to. Like Abner strengthening his hands by going into Rizpah or David securing the kingdom by taking the call, there are people who are willfully taking the middle of our nation and manipulating them for their own purposes. And it's not even hidden. It's not. It's been clearly expressed. The old system must be deconstructed and the new system has to be constructed on its ashes. Again, I, I'm all for civil discourse. I am for exchanging ideas and debating our opinions. But the command to love one's neighbor demands that we refute the deception that has led many to embrace the destruction of one of the greatest systems of government and economy the world has ever known. The media and, and the left are intentionally weaving lies that treat people like pawns. Does the right do it? I'm sure they do. Absolutely. Sure of it. They just don't have the loudest bullhorn right now. The media does. It's their narrative. Is it true? People are not pawns. All of this is antithetical to God's law and kingdom. In God's economy, every person is an image bearer of the true and living God. People are not expendable pieces to be used and maneuvered how anyone pleases in order to gain political advantage. So, okay, I'm going to apply this and I'm going to do this as directly and clearly as I can because I don't think I can afford not to. Some of you are going to agree what I'm about to say. Some of you aren't. You guys know my MO. If this is your first time here, I'm so, so sorry. I usually hang out for a while expounding the text, and then I spend about five minutes applying it. I've only spent about five minutes expounding the text, and the rest I'll spend applying it. If I do this again, church, I will allow you to ask for my resignation, but today I'm going to ask for a little grace. It is really clear that God is silent in our culture. And so let's start with the positive. When God is not silent, all people are significant. When God is not silent, all people 
are significant. Why? Because it's what God's word says, so it's what we believe. Every single person is significant. That means from conception to grave, and we believe even beyond. Every person we believe, because the Bible says we have an absolute truth on which we stand to make this statement. People, hear me, people are to be honored, treated with respect for no other reason than the fact that they are created in the image of their creator. And any actions to the contrary are sinful. They're to be condemned. Psalm 8, as Brother Corey read for us, makes this point with incredible clarity. God has crowned man, meaning men, women, children, human beings, with honor and glory. People are not pawns. Every person, regardless of station, education, skin color, nationality, or economic status, is endowed with both the privilege and responsibility of being made in the image of God. The problem is... The more you chip away at some of those bedrock truths like this one, the more people become pawns. The more you deny what God has said, the more the silence of God pervades a culture and even the church. Listen, hear me. God does not speak just because a man stands and speaks. It's not so. This may be a really bad sermon to use that illustration, but... But God speaks when his word is rightly expounded and declared unapologetically. The more you deny what God has said, the more the silence of God pervades a culture of society and the more the people are used and abused. The reality is the more you chip away at these foundational biblical truths, you don't get less abuse, you get more So let me warn you, some of you who are saying yes and amen are about to condemn me, and I'm okay with that. Hear this. Our country was not built on these truths. Was it really? That all people were made in the image and likeness of God? I mean, I I get we said that in writing, but we didn't live it. People had to fight for over the course of 150 years to drink out of the same water fountain. People of various sizes, shapes, and colors have united to fight against the lies of racism and to demand real justice where people are treated according to their merit and not the color of their skin. Where evil is punished because it's evil and good is rewarded because it's good. And I'm talking about real justice. You see, part of the problem is we have no idea what real justice looks like. We don't. You want a picture of justice? There's a lot of places in the scripture I could point you to, but Leviticus 19.15 gives a beautiful piece of legislation of what justice actually looks like, and here it is. You shall do no injustice in judgment. How are you going to avoid this injustice in judgment in the courts? Here's how. You shall not be partial to the poor, nor honor the person of the mighty. Why is that justice? It's, it's not because some sort of abstract rule of justice that we, we just have to figure it out. It's, it's because God is just. It's because God is impartial in his judgments. God will not look at you according to your station, your bank account, or your connections here on earth. Any of those things that might give you an advantage with man will not give you an advantage with God. You want to know what justice is? Know God. 
You don't know God, you don't know what justice is, and you can't possibly know what it is. Maybe if you're completely unplugged from everything that's gone on in the world the last three years, some of this will make no sense. And part of me wants to say good for you, and part of me wants to say shame on you. There are things, of course, about our form of government that could be improved. This is true of all worldly systems, and guess what, friends? It will always be true of every worldly system. But if you think the answer is some sort of looming revolution, and that's what's going to usher in this utopian age of equality and sinless perfection, you are living in the silence of God. If your thinking isn't informed by the Bible, hear me, it's still informed by something. Things don't just come out of nowhere. So if you don't know what God says about this or that, if you are looking through a lens, any other lens other than the scriptures, it's the wrong lens. So in every world system, yes, some people will eventually become pawns. And I will say that there are at least two reasons for this. I know that's not the number in your notes. I know there's more, um, but at least two reasons. So I want to start with this one, which is, I guess, like point four or whatever. Uh, it's this. When God is silent, individuals are replaced by groups. When God is silent... Individuals are replaced by groups. What do I mean by that? I mean, when God is silent, we lose the ability to look at an individual as one who bears the image of God. To, to look and to know that their dignity and glory is not attached to the group they're attached to, but it's attached to the God who created them. So we see groups for instance, we see politicians and we make blatant statements about what a politician is, scoundrels and the like. We look at doctors as if they're all connected behind this conspiracy to take away our rights. So let me use that as an example. I know, listen, I get it. Some of us are tempted to see and talk through that lens. But what does that actually do? Are we willing to say, really, that a doctor who actually loves his patients he serves doesn't have a real desire to safeguard them by making the recommendations that he's making? Whether we agree with them or not? We know there are other groups. We see police officers, especially our culture does, and make statements about police officers and what they do. We see white people and black people, and we talk about those groups as though any member who belongs to a given group are characterized by all the stereotypes we can come up with in our mind that we associate with said group. Rizpah and McCall, they're not individuals here. They're members of a group. They belong to a group that were second, maybe even third class citizens. Citizens of God's kingdom, and they're treated as tools, cogs, pawns. See, church, I am thoroughly convinced that you have to gag God to look at people through the group lens. Why? Because the word of God doesn't allow it. It won't. Now, follow me very, very closely here, because this is critical because you may hear this argument and you may argue that there is a sense in which God's word puts people into groups. Well, let's look at that. God's word clearly teaches that systemic sin is real. God's word teaches that. But bear with me. In fact, the Old Testament actually emphasizes that truth. 
to anyone living in the silence of God as they take up the word of God, what they find in the Old Testament is that we're all connected to groups. But sin has corrupted each and every one of those groups. We find those groups in the Old Testament not based on skin color or political standings. We call them nations. They are gathered together and every single one is sinful except one. The whole Old Testament is all about this one nation and we know her as Israel. God called her. So this one group was not like the other tongues, tribes, and nations. She was holy, set apart for the Lord, a kingdom of priests. Sin corrupted her. And part of what the Old Testament teaches is that every group under that lens is condemned. You want to try to enact justice based on a group lens? That's fine. But that means everyone is condemned and no one survives. Families are punished for the sins of their fathers. Nations are punished for the sins of their leaders. The group lens, it, it, listen, it's, it's legitimate, but it's not inadequate. But it is inadequate, I'm sorry, it is. There's no culture, no subculture, no movement, no system that stands as pure and holy in the sight of God. Why? Because we live in this present evil age and, and each of those systems are ultimately under the control of the evil one, so says 1 John. I mean, the reality is, listen, there's, there's a lot of talk about social justice in our culture. The problem with the idea of social justice is that it's built on a faulty, unbiblical system. Why? Because the whole idea actually requires you to look at people through a group lens. The whole idea of social justice is not really based on the equity of the individuals who are rewarded for doing good and are punished for doing evil. No, it's built on a completely different system where everyone belongs to a group. Many belong to the group we refer to as the oppressed and the other groups are the oppressors. That's it. There's two. You belong to one or the other and justice looks different depending on which group you belong to. And it's just not biblical. The lens itself will not bring about justice. So remember, before the cross, the emphasis was on corporate solidarity. Groups do receive justice according to their connection. But what was that teaching us? It was it teaching us that this is how we're actually to apply justice to our individual cultures? No. It's working toward the coming of the cross so that we might understand that our group that we belong to, every one of us, is the group of Adam. That's the whole point. Everyone on earth belonged to a group. You were neither an Israelite or you weren't. You were a Jew or a Gentile. If you were a Gentile, you were separated from God without hope, estranged from the covenants of promise. If you were Israel, guess what? You're condemned too because in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, the true Israel, the last Adam, to save people from every tribe, tongue, and nations. I mean, we know this, don't we? So why would we walk out these doors and apply a different lens as we evaluate what's going on in the culture? 
Are you saying that there's a truth for in here, but out there we can actually divide people up into these groups and say, these people deserve this and others this? That it's evil if they do it, but this group not so much? It's absolutely ridiculous. See, the problem is not because we have two groups, the oppressed and the oppressors. The problem with our world is we have two groups, in Christ and in Adam. The solution is not revolution. The solution is the cross. But our society is living in the silence of God. They've judged God and found him wanting. They've kicked him out of the public square, out of our academia. They have no desire to be under his rule and they've chosen to live in the silence of God. Before the cross, the group lens was applied and the lesson was we are all condemned. Justice condemns us all. After the cross, each person is judged for their own sin. That transition from the corporate focus to the individual focus, it's explicitly stated in Jeremiah chapter 31. I want to look at that. If you know Jeremiah 31, it's the pronouncement of the new covenant, which is what we live under. But look at what Jeremiah 31 verses 29 through whatever, 32 says. It says, in those days they shall say no more, the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. But everyone shall die for his own iniquity. Every man who eats the sour grapes, his teeth shall be set on edge. So the Lord goes on to promise the new covenant in the very next verse that will accomplish this shift from the corporate justice to the individual. He says, I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I've made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. See, see, the point is, after the cross and after the fulfillment of Jeremiah 31, we cannot look at anyone according to the flesh. Before, yes, those markers were put in place by God. Afterwards, no, 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 we cannot look at anyone according to the flesh. It's not that there's no place, by the way, for recognitions of groups and the connection of individuals to a group when we think about justice. I'm not arguing that there's no place for that. The problem is there's a false dichotomy forced by unbiblical ideologies which create unbiblical boundaries where the groups are based on race because of materialistic evolutionary worldview, which is a lie. Or the groups are formed by some sort of neo-Marxist ideal separating the groups into oppressed and oppressor. It's still a lie. Political camps, whatever boundaries you want to apply. Listen, hear me. The, no matter the human system, to the extent that it's created in the silence of God, it's blind and broken. Take it off and put on Christ. God has spoken and has said there are two groups and they're not defined by nationality, socioeconomic advantage or disadvantage, skin color, eye color, hair color, or any other external feature. The division is between two lines, two seeds, two heads, Adam and Christ. That's it. Not to deny the other affiliations, but they are all subordinated unto this primary affiliation. So that's the first problem. I promised you another, and it's got to be noon by now, but that's okay. Here's the second problem. When God is silent, people become victims. 
when God is silent, people become victims. Our current cultural narrative automatically painting anyone of a certain demographic as being the victim of systemic oppression actually dehumanizes the one the storytellers claim to help. I mean, we need to understand that. There are few things more dehumanizing than treating people like they're not responsible for their own actions. A book I highly recommend called Not the Way It's Supposed to Be, A Breviary of Sin by Cornelius Plantinga. I, I, wanted, to read, I wanted to read like three pages, but I had to cut. So I want to read this section for you. It says, in his Lyman Beecher lectures, William Mule recount, recalls the humanist passions of Arthur Kostler, a one-time defender of communism, who later became its critic. What began to distress Kostler was that in the Soviet communist system, the concept of blame disappeared. Nobody blamed reluctant communists. Nobody blamed peasants who resented the loss of their freedoms or who resisted conversion to communism. For surely they had been corrupted by the faulty social and economic conditions. Nobody blamed critics of the party line. For surely they had been brainwashed by capitalist propaganda. Instead of blame, party officials offered their opponents pity and re-education. Of course, the cradle of such pity often turned out to be mental hospitals and the school for such re-education a concentration camp, places at least as confining and dehumanizing as any conventional prison. But at least none of the inmates was to blame for being there. Kostler found all this blameless progressively disturb blamelessness progressively disturbing. Before long, it began to come clear that those whom we did not blame, we do not regard as responsible. Those whom we do not regard as responsible, we do not see as fully human. And those whom we do not see as fully human, we are willing to twist and manipulate to suit our own convenience. We are a people who are called to call good, good. And call evil, you guessed it, evil. Not because of fear of man, but again because of the truth of God. And if you choose to say evil is good and good is evil, you will answer to a holy God who sees and knows all things. If you choose to say that some individual is not responsible for his evil words or deeds because of his context, then you choose to dehumanize them. You choose to treat them as a mentally maimed spectator incapable of making significant and meaningful choices. For example, let me ask you a question. I think we need to understand this. If a man was raised in the 1950s in the deep south of Mississippi as a white man in a white town, he was raised and taught from the moment he could comprehend that all people of color are lesser and to be kept separate, that they are only good for use as a tool. If he was raised by a family who taught him those things constantly in a town where everyone believed those things and he saw those things with his all, all of his eyes or his own eyes and that's all he ever knew. It's how he was raised, which I've heard way too many times in this town. Is he responsible for his view? Yes! Yes, he is! Surely we all agree. 
Listen, you don't have to deny the systemic and corporate way in which sin works. There are real systemic sins at work in that man. You don't have to deny that in order to continue to treat people as real moral agents. Our choices are significant and we are culpable. Our words and deeds will someday be judged quite apart from our skin color, our bank accounts, our connections, or any other advantage or disadvantage you may have perceived or real. In the end, according to Hebrews 4.13, each and every one of us will be naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Hear me, friends. Each one of you are responsible for the words that you speak and the things that you do. You're even responsible for the things that you think. You're responsible to put on Christ, to live in this world in such a way that we shine as lights in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. Any ideology or system that calls evil good or dismisses evil based on a narrative of victimization does more damage to the victim than to the original offense. In conclusion, when God is silent, people become pawns. In our passage this morning... Rizpah and Michal become pawns in the struggle over the kingdom of Israel. Their glory and dignity as necessary allies made in the image of God were set aside for their usefulness and expediency. I've labored to help us see how the deafening silence of God in our own society is leading to the treatment of people made in the image of God as pawns to be played in a twisted and deadly political game. I've also attempted to show us that it's the silence of God that led to the chipping away of the fundamental truths of human dignity and justice, however faultily we once held them. When we see only groups and not individuals, people become pawns. When we deny human moral agency and responsibility, people become pawns. Both of these lies, they're based on biblical ideas but they come from worldview and ideologies that are antithetical to the word of God. They are born in and they promote the silence of God. Church, we do not and cannot consider anyone according to the flesh. We must labor to see people as God sees them. People who've been crowned with glory and honor who are truly responsible for their response to that incredible privilege because here's why I say this is often what I've seen in our culture, which has been the saddest thing, is when people are identified according to their groups and they become pawns, the response of Christians has been to treat them just like pawns. If you're going to do it to me, I'll do it to you. And if you're going to play the victim, then I'll play the victim. Friends, that's unbiblical. You are becoming the very thing you proclaim to hate. And it is dividing us. As we said, we'll protect the unity of this church. And I think there's no greater way to do that than begin seeing people as individual people created in the beauty and image of God. I pray that we would be a church that lives according to that truth. Would you stand as we close? Gracious Father, you know how often we fail to think your thoughts after you. How slothful we are when it comes to taking up the mind of Christ and applying it to each and every situation. Lord, how often we fail to take every thought captive. 
destroying strongholds and opinions that raise themselves up against the knowledge of you. Lord, we pray that you'd bring conviction upon us all. We are so tempted to live in the silence of God. Help it not be so among us. Lord, help us continue to break down the walls of division that once separated us and now makes us into your people. Help us not to look at anyone according to the flesh, even those who are living in the silence of God, but help us instead to know the answer is to have God speak through his word. Father, if the silence of God is what's causing people to become God, or people to become pawns, then the proclamation of God is the answer. The proclamation of truth. And yes, Father, it will be rejected at times. But we also know the word of God works. We're living testimonies to the fact that the word of God works. So Lord, give us strength and boldness to lovingly, patiently, graciously, yet consistently and boldly proclaim the truth of your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.